0: Today's scripture lesson is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which comes from the 10th chapter of the book of Luke, verses 25 through 37. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbors as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a good neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. The word of God for the people of God.
1: Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be beautiful to you, O Lord. Amen. So did you hear the word mercy in in what Lois said? Did you hear it? Yeah? Yeah? Did you hear it, Harper? Where'd you go, Harper? You're out there somewhere. There you are. Did you hear it? Yeah? So someone who knew the law of God asked Jesus, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, It's written in the law. You're a lawyer. You should know that. And he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. With all your mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Two commands, both very well known in Judaism. Do this, Jesus said, and you will live. But the lawyer doesn't say, thank you, teacher, and go on with his life. The lawyer wants more. Who is my neighbor? Who is not my neighbor? Who am I obligated to and who am I not? I want a single action to ensure eternal life. Instead, Jesus gives him a whole lifetime of work to do. Basically, he was asking, so I know all this stuff, now what do I do with it? How do I follow God in a way that makes a difference? Well, isn't that what we're all asking? I mean, what difference does this Christianity stuff mean anyway, if it doesn't make a difference? If we call ourselves Christians and people of God, what does that look like day to day? Jesus told a story. So what is the context? The context meaning what's all around the story? In Leviticus, which is a book in the Hebrew Bible, the word for neighbor has the same consonants, the same letters, as the word for enemy. In Hebrew, you don't have vowels, you just have consonants. And there's more to this commandment than the lawyer perceives. So Amy Jill Levine, he's a professor of Jewish and New Testament studies at Vanderbilt University, was also our JWW lecturer here at First Congregational. And what I learned from Professor Levine was the importance of understanding that original Jewish context. In her articles and books, she reminds us again that this story has deep Jewish roots and is subject to interpretation. However, the Good Samaritan has been appropriated by politicians and economists and hospitals and cafes. The meaning has been reduced and kind of romanticized to if someone has a problem on the side of the road, you stop and help. Well, taken in the historical context of Jesus' Jewish audience, this interpretation could be quite different. The priest and the Levite walk by. No excuse is given. Per Jewish law of the Mishnah, even those who were the cleanest, ritually pure states, are obligated to stop and attend to a corpse. So they fail to love their neighbor. The parable then takes a twist. The original hearers of that parable would have expected this scenario. A priest, a Levite, and an Israelite. Jews in the first century were either priests or Israelites or Levites. But doesn't that kind of remind you of a, another recognizable lead phrase? There was a priest, a minister, and a rabbi who walked into a bar... So if somebody was telling you that, that's what you would expect, right? And the bartender says, what is this, a joke? So Jesus changes that parable to make a point. The priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. A what? The onlookers were ready to relate to that third person, the Israelite. He was the hero of the story. Here instead is a Samaritan. To the listeners, this is not how it's supposed to go. The Samaritan binds a man's wounds and takes him to the local inn? The Samaritan writes a blank check? The Samaritan, the enemy? There's no such thing, they think, as a good Samaritan. See how when we listen to this stuff as Christians, we've heard this over and over and over, and we just think, like, "Oh, good Samaritan." But to the original hearers of this, it was like, oh. "But there's a reason for that, because historically, Samaria and Judea, they were rivals. They were worse than Michigan and Ohio State. They, they Samaritans refused Jesus hospitality when he traveled through their land to go to Jerusalem." And in ancient Samaria, Galilean pilgrims traveling through Jerusalem were murdered. And the Samaritans desecrated the Judean temple with human bones on the altar. And in return, Judeans raised, they they tore it down, the Samaritan temple. The resolution is found in 2 Chronicles 28, when the prophets convinced them to stop fighting. But those wounds run deep. What once was ancient Samaria is now the West Bank. What if the first person who walked by that beaten man was a member of the Israel Defense Force and the second person a part of the Christian peace witness and the third a Palestinian Muslim, a member of Hamas? That's how it would sound to them. Putting a human face on the victim and the enemy, who shows compassion, allows us to imagine other possibilities. And Professor Levine says, the point is, we have to give that person a chance, because if we don't, we're gonna die in that ditch. Imagine, you're walking along a very dangerous road, and you get jumped Robbed and beaten and left for dead lying in the ditch you hear footsteps it's hard to open your eyes because one's swollen shut who is the person you're looking for to help you out think of that person who would you expect to come looking for you But that person that you recognize takes one look at your broken body and walks on by. Maybe they didn't recognize you. More footsteps. Who is the second person you would expect to show up and come to your rescue? They pass by too. Maybe they'll send for help. Someone else is coming. Who might it be? Ah, it's your enemy. Who is that for you? Can you picture your enemy? The least expected person to come by. And yet they stop They get out of their car, they dial 911, they sit next to you with the emergency flashers blinking and they find a blanket to throw over your naked body and they get a water bottle and a handkerchief and they wipe the blood from your face and they tell you, help's on the way. And the ambulance puts your broken body on a board and loads you into the ambulance and your enemy follows you to the hospital and they help check you into the ER And you know how hard that is these days. Saying, they know you. And they leave a phone number to call. And when you're settled in, they go on their way and they say, I'm going to come back and check on you when I'm back in town. Jesus answers the lawyer's question of who is my neighbor with, who acted as a neighbor. It was the one who showed what is it, Declan? What is it, Harper? Mercy. And as we hear this story, we can picture the audience of the people, including the lawyer, gathered around Jesus that day. Presumably all of them were Jewish people. And then there is an audience of the early Christians of Luke's community, because this is where the story's found today, is in Luke's, Luke's book and who, who are trying to live their lives as followers of Christ. So there's a commonality among all of these listeners is that their interest is how to be faithful and how to live their lives. And that's what we're here to do too, to learn to be faithful. The parable addresses the need then and now like a piece of, of transcendent art. It speaks the essence of humanity. However, aha, this page. It speaks to all the ages. A lot of hatred is religiously based and rooted in historical things like wars. We just got back from vacation of Scotland and Britain. Talk about wars in Scotland and Britain. That's how they tell their history. There was this war and this war and this war and this war. And they still have that feeling, Scots and Brits. Scots eat um, uh, chips and, chips and uh, fish and chips with haddock. If you're a Scot, you eat it with haddock, not cod like the Brits do. So there's still this division between the Scots and the Brits the North and the South, the Yankees and the Confederates, the Israelites and the Palestinians. Those wounds are hardest to heal. And a current day Jericho Road is the trek from Central America through Mexico to the American border. The latest rendition of the beaten man is the image of a father and his young daughter washed up lifeless on the riverbank. The parable speaks of the need of church, of this sacred space that holds the stories that have seen the test of time, stories we need to hear again and again in each age and moment of human history. And the power of the parable calls us to examine who we are and how to live into that being. And we can't just reduce it to a slogan to sell auto insurance or a simple commandment to reminds us to help anyone who's in need. I mean, we can hand a dollar out the window, but that doesn't end poverty. It doesn't stop the night of terror of living on the street. It can't stop there. It's got to be much deeper than that. It's deeper than satisfying the need to feel like a good Samaritan. When we put ourselves in the ditch and hear the twist in the story, like the original hears heard it it makes more sense who are we well i have a story to share it's a it's a personal one right out of seminary i landed at first baptist church in dayton ohio i once was an american baptist and it was a beautiful church i was one of three pastors it only took six months though not much of a honeymoon when things started to go bad The other two pastors started a secret romantic relationship. Even though one was still married. It was the choir that broke the news, because the wife was a choir member. It got very ugly. One pastor left and the other was asked to leave, and there I was, right out of seminary. Newbie pastor, scared to death. And during the time I worked with the previous pastor, I was under constant attack. They found fault with everything I did. They fed into my old wounds of feeling deeply inadequate. And I was convinced that church leadership was not for me. If this is what people do to each other in church, I'm out of here. It moved me to find a therapist. And through the therapist's weekly support, I began to stand up for myself. But my confidence was at an all time low. Then in walks the interim. His name was Reverend Bill Kutcher. He looked like Ronald Reagan. He was tall and had slicked back hair and he wore a suit and big smile. He looked like a movie star. As a liberal who lived through the Reagan era, that meant enemy enemy As a newbie pastor, here was a man who knew the lead pastor's family right from the time he was born, who I raised up and became the lead pastor of this of this church and now he was asked to leave and here was the interim, his friend. He was also the president of the denomination a couple times. He served churches in Washington DC. He even prayed with the president. I'm not trusting this guy. Instead, this bigger than life personality met me like an equal. He called me senior pastor since I was there before him, even though he was 40 years my senior. He sent me little notes to compliment me on a prayer or a sermon or something I had done right. He asked for my opinion. And he even followed my advice a couple times. This perceived enemy became my mentor. He taught me how to do weddings and funerals. He shared with me his sermon prep. He restored my confidence, not only in my call as pastor, but in the church and in God. He showed mercy on me. He didn't have to. Not this nobody right out of seminary, not this battered body that was cast aside during a church crisis, but he did. And because he showed mercy, I'm here today. Reverend Bill Kutcher, my hero, struggled with dementia in his last years. I visited him once in Granville, Ohio, and Tom and I had lunch with him and his wife, and he said, with his big smile, "You and I had fun, didn't we?" And that was my last memory of him. He passed on October 15, 2007. Bill Kuchar was a good Samaritan to me. Whenever a division strikes, we come back to that question: Who are we, and what are we about? What is our vision and mission statement? Personal and collective. Child of God, disciple of Christ, member of the church. What gifts and talents have you gathered through experiences of this wild and wonderful life? What spiritual attributes have you honed in your relationships and your missteps and your wrong turns? What mercy has been given you? an encouraging word instead of a slap in the face, taken by the most unlikely Savior to a place of healing. It is recognizing that, that mercy, mercy, that moment when we know we deserved far worse, but we were pardoned, we were treated better than expected, and it impacts our whole being. It is in recognizing that moment when we were extended mercy that encourages us to extend mercy to others. And though we go through changes, we are still church. An open and affirming, just peace church of extravagant welcome and openness to wonder and a proactive witness for the possibility of a just world. Aren't we? And what does the Lord require of us? To do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. That's who we are Church, is that who we are? We don't need to get discouraged. God is with us. Amen.